this week on the Backtable Podcast. I also think that a future for AI is in genetics and being able to go through the genetic, the billions of data points that come out of the genetic code for any individual human and to identify those patients with connective tissue disorders that are young and that have not yet developed an aneurysm or a dissection, but are at risk of developing that. So genetic aortopathies will be identified by AI in the future. And that's just a, you know, that's five to 10 years away from now. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Backtable, your source for all things endovascular and more. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on any platform like Spotify or even our website, backtable.com. You can follow us on social media like Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and keep up with the latest and greatest updates. And please, please give us feedback. Uh, We love hearing from you. First, a quick word from our sponsors. One of the biggest challenges clinicians face is not related to devices or techniques. It's the workflow. For conditions like aortic emergency, PE, and stroke, Outcomes are impacted because it takes too long for treatment decisions to be made and for patients to receive therapy. Viz AI leverages artificial intelligence to coordinate care and improve workflow and is trusted in over 1,000 hospitals across the U.S. and in Europe. The platform uses AI to detect disease, provide access to high-fidelity imaging and patient information, and allows you to communicate securely through the HIPAA-compliant communication tool conveniently on your phone, desktop, or within the radiology workstation. No more asking the ED to send you a grainy picture or making countless phone calls to activate your teams. Visit viz.ai to learn more. And now back to the show. I'm Sabine as your host today, and I'd like to welcome vascular surgeon Dr. Benjamin Starnes from University of Washington in Seattle. Welcome, Ben. Thank you, Sabine. Happy to be here. Absolutely. Um, You know, I've been watching a lot of these uh, documentaries on Netflix lately about climbing mountains, and I notice you're a mountaineer, all right? Uh, how many mountains have you climbed? Well, only one, uh, yeah. but it's but it's a big one, Mount Rainier <laughs> here in the Pacific Northwest. Wow, yeah. I mean, those 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 uh, uh, documentaries are pretty scary. I mean, it's it's a pretty big feat. So, <laughs> yeah, it's the real deal. I've summited Mount Rainier seven times, wow, and uh, but all with uh, great friends, and and uh, we've had a great experience up there. Nice. Congrats. I mean, be careful. I mean, those 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 documentaries scare me, but they they look amazing. <laughs> You're also one of the first adopters of using uh, AI artificial intelligence in the setting of aortic disease, and um, that's something that we've been doing um, pretty much standard of care for stroke intervention for the last couple of years. So it's going to be really interesting to see how this is going to affect your practice, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Before we get into that, though, I'd, I'd love to know um, a little bit more about you, your training. H- how did you go from the military and then end up in Seattle? Well, I, I grew up um, the youngest of three boys. And when my parents had finished paying the tuitions for our college educations, they didn't have enough money to support me going to medical school. So I applied for an HPSP scholarship with the military wound up doing my residency at Walter Reed in Washington, D.C., went on to do my vascular fellowship uh, at Walter Reed and again at uh, the Cleveland Clinic, and then was stationed in the Pacific Northwest at Madigan Army Medical Center. I had 15 years in the military, uh, three combat tours, and uh, 
very successful military career, but then was recruited as the chief of the Division of Vascular Surgery at the University of Washington about 15 years ago. Well, thank you for your service. And how, so 15 years you've been in at University of Washington, is that right? That's right. Great. And your practice focus, is it on aortic repairs? Yeah. So my entire practice is, is pretty much focused on aortic interventions for acute aortic syndromes, aortic dissection, ruptured aortic aneurysms, traumatic blunt aortic injury, um, elective repair of complex juxtarenal and pararenal aortic okay. aneurysm using fenestrated techniques, that sort of stuff. Okay. Are you, would you say you're, you're shifting more towards endo or, you know, both open and endo or it, of course, or it's just case dependent, obviously. Well, it's, it's really interesting because when I first got to the University of Washington in 2007, uh, we were really pushing the endo envelope. And so we mm -hmm. got to a point around 2012, 2013, that 80 to 85% of what we did was endo. Now it's shifting back in the other direction because I think there's less in the way of open surgical skills in the community. And so we, about 40% of what I do now is open and 60% endo. I'm sure a lot of those are referred to you to do the open, right? Because correct. They just can't, correct. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. How, how big is your vascular team at uh, UW? So we have 17 vascular surgeons at four sites of practice. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. It's, it's That's pretty big. That's huge. Group. Yeah. 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 Do you and practice at all four sites too? I only practice at Harborview Medical Center, which is uh, in downtown Seattle. It's a level one trauma center. So we see all of the uh, acute emergencies. Great. And um, in regards to aortic repairs, then is it solely the vascular team um, working on that? Do, do you work with any services like uh, IR, cardiology? You know, we did uh, mm -hmm. for a, a little while, but the cardiologists are so busy with structural heart disease and and heart failure that they sometimes will dabble in the endovascular sure. world, but but we all work together uh, pretty seamlessly. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, in my hospital, you know, we we do aortas alongside with the vascular surgeon, but we we don't have seventeen vascular surgeons; we have like two. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. It, it's it's great, and it's it's amazing. You have such a big team to be able to doing that. Now, when did you start using AI um, for uh, management of aortic disease? Well, I'll tell you, you know, it's interesting. Everybody throws around the term AI and artificial intelligence, but we all use AI every single day. I mean, mm -hmm. whenever you get on a Google website and you Google something, you're using artificial intelligence because that website is streamlining its information based on what you're inputting. Yeah. We also use artificial intelligence when we talk to Siri in our cars <laughs> or Alexa. Um, all of that is based on AI. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, well, we all, well, what we'll do is we'll kind of talk about what your current workflow is. Uh, we'll split it between emergent aortic emergencies and elective aortas. And we'll kind of see what the current platforms, how they can kind of help you with that workflow. Um, and I'll use my experience. You know, I've been using a platform called VizAI for stroke intervention for the past, I think it's been four years now or three. And um, we can really kind of compare and contrast how that can help you in aortas. And I can kind of use my experience in aortas too to kind of see where this all fits in. Let's talk about an, uh, an aortic emergency, whether it's a rupture or a dissection. Now, 
when the diagnosis is made, usually I'm, I'm guessing by the radiologist reading the scan in the ER, what's the next step in the workflow at, at UW um, before any kind of platform or anything? What, what, what would happen? Would they call the ER? Would they call you? Yeah. So the current workflow is pretty cumbersome and outdated in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So normally we'll get a call from an, a physician in an, emer in an emergency room somewhere in the state where he says, I have a 74-year-old patient who presented with abdominal pain. We got a CT scan and we found an eight centimeter ruptured AAA. And then basically they will call the transfer center, which is kind of a centralized service who gets in touch with the vascular surgeon on call. We will then have to find our way to a computer somewhere, typically a desktop, but not on your on your iPhone to look at the images. We then look at the images once we've gotten on the computer and we accept the patient and transfer. Sometimes we'll give the referring provider some tips on how to manage the patient, whether it's sure. blood pressure regimens, that sort of thing. And then the patient uh, starts on their way either by um, ambulance or by uh, rotary aircraft. And then we'll prepare for the patient to arrive. So we'll have the images to look at and prepare for the case by get, grabbing the appropriate graphs, that sort of thing. Are these transfers within the four, just the four hospitals that you're working on, or are all the community practices kind of around Seattle or, or you know, in that area? Like, yeah, how so big is your catch zone? It's interesting because we work in a very unique place. We're the only level one trauma center for five American states. Wow. So Washington, Alaska, Wyoming, Montana, Idaho. Wow. Okay. And so that's 27% of the landmass of the United States, but only 15 million people. So, so we get calls from Montana. We'll get calls from Anchorage, Alaska, we'll, where they have, you know, very few vascular surgeons available. I think they only have one or two in Anchorage. And so we'll, we'll get calls from all over the state, all over the five state region. When it's within our own system, it's pretty streamlined. I mean, yeah. all of the aortic emergencies will come through Harborview mostly, sure. and we'll take those patients directly to the operating room and uh, and fix their 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 problems. And one thing you mentioned, I mean, images, seeing the images, I mean, are all you know from my radiologist standpoint, I mean, are all the images on the same PAC system? How do you have access to all of that five states wide? That's hard. Yeah, that becomes an issue as well. So it's taken about 10 years for us. Every time someone calls, if they're not part of our, our network, they are by the end of the evening because the, they, the transfer center will be obligated to get them to sign into our PAC system and have our PAC systems be able to communicate seamlessly. Sometimes it boils down to the fact that we can't get the images across. Sure. And I'll have that provider, whether it's an ER physician or a another surgeon, take snapshots of the sure. CT scan yeah. with their iPhone and just text them to me. I know that that's old not hip. No, that's it's old fine. school. It's not HIPAA <laughs> it's compliant. Happens at all. this the, exactly. I mean, cover right. the name or something. But yeah, I mean that happens. It it even um, it's very hard, right? I mean, I know from a technical standpoint from PAX that it's not that easy to say. I mean, or it takes some time to get those images to you. So those are very important. I mean, it's a very important fact there about images because we'll get, we'll round back to that. What about contacting? So we're talking about, we're, we're going analog. We're, we're calling you on a cell phone, transfer center. 
who else is being notified other than you? Is any are the ICU hospitalists being notified, or are you really not at all? The point? Yeah, okay, not at all. They're they're usually surprised by the fact that we have a patient that's yep. post op from a ruptured AAA. Yeah, so exactly. I mean, and who's calling the OR? Is it you personally calling the OR surgery? Team? Typically, me yep. or a resident or fellow is calling the front desk of the operating room to let them know. And it's multiple phone calls. It's not seamlessly integrated. Exactly. At all. Exactly. I mean, this is very similar um, to you know what we were dealing with with stroke, and yeah, and even right now with our aortic emergencies at, at my hospital. I mean, there's, again, yeah, like you were saying, ICU doesn't even know until the case is done and we're calling them, right? So it's, right. it's a lot of this analog uh, connections. Now, what about reps? Uh, are the are, are reps frequently supporting your cases or are you have all the graphs available at your hospital and you just, you, you, you do all of that on your own? You know, we have, we're lucky because we, we treat, you know, last year we did more than 350 aortic cases wow, across amazing. Yeah. our four hospital system. But most of those aortic cases are focused in two hospitals, Harborview and UW-Montlake. And, um, you know, it depends on the physician. I typically don't ask for reps to be in the room. Uh, we have over 300 aortic stent grafts on our shelves. Wow. So we can choose the right graft for the right anatomy. But we're very comfortable in using the graphs. Now, some of our newer faculty may like to have the reps in the room to help them get through the case successfully. But uh, it's it's vascular surgeon dependent, I would say. Okay. And you know, all the measurements then um, are you are you per, are you sitting down there on your packs and measuring the you know the neck and yes. this and that and and uh, yep. Uh, and, yep, uh, we do okay. it all. And, um, you know, I, I try and tell the residents, especially in a rupture setting, if it's an infrarenal rupture and the patient's a suitable candidate for EVAR, I'll tell them the real, really the most, two most important measurements are the D1 and the L1. So the, the diameter of the aorta just below the renal arteries and then the mm -hmm. length from the renal arteries to the aortic bifurcation. Sure. Um, the limbs you can sort out later, but those are the two most important measurements. Yeah. Yeah. Very good point. Okay. So, you know, obviously we've identified kind of, like you said, a pretty uh, antiquated system of what goes on after the repair. Then again, then, then who's being notified? ICU, hospitalist, you're, you or a resident are calling them? Right. We're basically walking with the patient up to the ICU and doing a handoff to yeah. the ICU team. Yeah. Yep. Which is pretty much the first time they're hearing about the patient and- right. uh, among their many other patients. So, okay, let's let's circle back now. And um, you know, when we talk about AI, like you said, AI is a is a is a term that's thrown out by a lot of people, a lot of people who aren't understanding of tech and stuff. But AI in this setting, you know, if we're talking about Viz AI or other platforms that are out there, you know, is basically a, a software that helps you integrate the images and the teams together. So um, now that you're incorporating this into your practice and you've, you've seen it at work a little bit, does, is AI recognizing the aortic aneurysms, uh, all of them, or, or is it recognizing the ruptures? Is it identifying them? Yeah. So the thing that I'm really excited about, uh, in using Viz AI, which we're just now starting to incorporate into our system is that we learned a lot from the stroke care, uh, service line where, yep. It would typically take 
between 45 minutes and an hour for the workflow to be successfully completed. And that can be reduced to just mere minutes. And what I'm excited about with the uh, treatment of our patients that harbor aortic aneurysms or aortic dissections is that those uh, diagnoses can be made and then the information can be rapidly disseminated to the, the team to connect the patients with life-saving treatments like an EVAR or an open repair. Yeah. Yeah. And exactly. I mean, that's, that's what we're doing at Stroke. I mean, from the second the, uh, you know, the embolus is detected or the perfusion abnormality is there, you know, I already know about it and I'm able to communicate with ER, neurology, ICU, hospitalists all at the same time. And then even other people like the stroke, um, you know, nursing team and, and everything. So that's kind of where the communication helps and identification. Have you seen how accurate is a platform? Have you seen it in action as far as identifying aortic is, is uh, you can talk about Viz oh. AI in, in particular, any other one about is there false positives, false negatives for aortic ruptures? No, no, no. It's 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 really accurate. I mean, and the other thing is that that we haven't talked about yet is the ability to just have a platform on my iPhone where I could mm -hmm. be out to dinner with my wife and get a call, and yeah. I can easily and very rapidly pull up the images and just scan through them. I, the first time I saw this, I was just blown yeah, away, right, at how fast <laughs> it is. Um, Clean, smooth. I mean, yeah, like it's exactly. Just, it's better than our packs. I'll, I'll tell you that right. much. It's, exactly. It's, I mean, sometimes I'll get in front of my computer and I'm just like waiting for the images yep. to stream across. Whereas with Viz AI, I can get on my my smart device or iPhone and just fly through those images and just really make quick decisions. And, oh, yeah. and you know, as well as I do, in, in these cases, minutes matter. Yeah. Again, the, the, the viewing platform, and we've talked about this whole thing now about images and getting there. I mean, the, having a viewing platform is so important because, I mean, you're making your approach and your decision based on the images. So they, that needs to be, you know, there and available. And it's hard when you're waiting to get sent from another hospital or things like that. That's right. What um, does the software calculate the sizes and everything for you for example the neck like we talked about you just said you know the the neck of the aorta below the renals from the renals to the bifurcation is it doing that all for you you know we haven't relied on it for that but there's no reason that it can't you know i mean these this is what we're talking about in terms of artificial intelligence we've got machine learning mm -hmm. um, it's interesting because i didn't know much about this until about 5 or 6 years ago yeah when I had an orthopedic surgeon who was sitting in a boardroom with me at a council meeting and he was going through all of these images and he was basically teaching the computer to identify fractures and patterns of fractures. And yeah. that's all that machine learning is. You're just teaching a computer to recognize patterns, pattern recognition. And that's exactly what Viz AI can do for us. It's going to be able to size for the endograft, it'll be able to not only tell you the diagnosis, but also help you in your planning. Yeah, definitely. And then in addition to uh, images, we touched on communication. So we, you know, before you're using calls and text messages. Now there's uh, on Viz, at least on for stroke, we have like, it's, it has a very nice text messaging platform, which can be done to your vascular team, to anyone else. And it's all HIPAA compliant. You know, we have a HIPAA compliant 
text messaging uh, a software at our hospital. It's called Vocera, but it's like I feel it's like made by third graders. It's it's clunky. It's slow, and and the UI is so terrible. <laughs> um, right. But this, you know, one thing I think that people are realizing is that UI is very important. Um, you know, user being user friendly and being you know smooth is is great. Mm -hmm. I would I would also say that you know hospital systems don't realize the savings yep. that would be incurred by having patients be able to be treated in a more rapid fashion because oh yeah you know if the patient's continuing to bleed for an hour and a half into their abdomen from a ruptured AAA that's going to mean they mean they need more blood transfusions. Sure. And they're going to be in the hospital longer. We know that. We know totally. that if we can get a patient in the OR quicker, that their length of stay is going to be decreased by 50%. And that, you know, that matters to hospital systems. That's huge. That's a huge point. What other services do you see kind of, you know, say we call it like an aortic response team. Like who, would el who else would be on this team on this platform? Well, it's not only the residents and fellows, but mm -hmm. it's the nursing staff in sure. the operating room. So your circulating nurse can be uh, notified in advance so that the room can start to get set up, the scrub techs, and then you know the vascular surgery team, and then the ICU team that's going to be taking care of the patient afterwards. Yeah, exactly. And again, you're not notifying the ICU team at the very end. I mean, they're aware of it. Everything's ready. There's just so much more streamlining um, that's going on with this. Right. What about non-emergent? So let, let's shift our focus and go to elective aortas. Um, now, are you? would you be planning to use AI to also identify non-ruptured you know, aortas that are five centimeters or above? Um, Absolutely. Well, any aneurysm, really. So yeah. even the smaller aneurysms, here's what happens. Um, and it's really, it's a reflection of our outdated healthcare system. A patient will go to the emergency room, let's say with right upper quadrant abdominal pain and be diagnosed with uh, cholecystitis, whether it be by ultrasound or CT scan. But oh, by the way, on that imaging study, they detected an aneurysm that was three and a half or four centimeters. Well, the patient will get treated for their gallbladder, but this incidentally detected aneurysm will not be addressed and it'll be forgotten. And the mm -hmm. patient, you can't rely on the patient to know that what was in their imaging report. But if, if the word aneurysm is in any report anywhere, VizAI can scan, you know, millions of documents and find those words and give you a list of patients who have aneurysms that have not been treated. And so those patients can be captured and brought into your system and be evaluated and then tucked under the wing, so to speak, to uh, treat once they reach a certain size. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we deal with that a lot where these things, exactly how you described it, where it's an incidental finding and then just kind of forgotten about or lost to follow up. So, you know, I do think that using you know, these kind of platforms will really capture and, and help uh, and benefit patients, you know, to be worked into a system and, and, and followed. Do you imagine like, you know, when we have stroke cases or when you have um, ruptures, this system kind of notifies you, like it sends you a message or it, it like blasts a tone on your phone. Would you want that for any aneurysm or you would want something more, um, 
you know, I, I don't know. Sometimes I, I would feel like that would be disruptive sometimes if it's just elective, but that may still Absolutely. be. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the, one of the topics that people get afraid of. I mean, I can't imagine being, having my phone go yeah. off every time the yep. word aneurysm was reported on a, on a CT scan within our system because my phone would basically just be going off all day long. Yep. Um, and so, yeah, I think you can tone it down to the point where you, you get a list or maybe one of your providers, your PA or your ARNP check, uh, at the end of the week, a list of patients to then be able to go in and look at their imaging and then give the appropriate referral when needed. Sure. And, um, one kind of interesting, we, we find this kind of conundrum in, in interventional radiology, sometimes in radiology is say you have this finding and, you know, how do you then follow up? Like, do you wait for the primary person to call you and make the referral? Or do you kind of be more proactive and you call them and say, hey, look, this is what's here. Do you want us to kind of take care of this? Uh, how well, do you approach that? Well, Sabine, that's the scary part to me is that right now, the way the system is, without artificial intelligence, it's a clunky, outdated system where we don't have any idea who's out there that has an aneurysm or dissection sure. that is not symptomatic. We have no idea. And we rely on the primary care providers to put in the referral to us where we can actually evaluate the images. But I think by having those patients be identified across a vast, incredibly enormous system or healthcare system, we can be proactive about providing life-saving treatments to patients who don't even know that they have an aneurysm or, or you know, may have been lost to follow-up. Totally. Now, since you're just starting this, do you have any examples of how it's impacted your practice? I mean, I know you're just starting using it and, and we're, this is kind of a, um, a lot more will come in the next year, but do you have any examples of how it's impacted you? Yeah. So a couple of recent cases where we've been able to, to get on to the platform and take a look at imaging and get the patient treated expeditiously. I mean, those those are the examples that that yep. mean the most to me. Imagine yeah. all those hospitals, you know, having you know the ability to upload. You know, the, the way how it works uh, for for our listeners and and other people is that when the images are scanned in the CT scanner, they get sent to the PAC server and they get sent to a separate Viz AI server or, or AI platform server because there's multiple, not just Viz. And then that analyzes the images and that's put on a totally different server. So you could essentially have all your hospitals in that five-state catch zone be able to upload and you would have access to all of this. And, and you're not you know, dealing with snapshots on a phone and all of that. And you're making those decisions really, really quickly and accurately. Yeah. And the other thing we uh, haven't touched on is the bi-directionality of, of the uh, software. So not only does it feed images to you, you can actually, it integrates with your EMR mm -hmm. so that you can actually write notes and document uh, your workflow um, into the system. So that That's actually cool, yeah. becomes important in terms of coding and billing, uh, yeah. in terms of being able to, um, to uh, become compensated for some of the work that you do yeah, um, that's, that's amazing. That's never yeah. Even, yeah. I wish we had that. I mean, we have a outdated EHR called Allscripts EMD, and I wish we had. I mean, Ep I believe it. Some of the platforms right now um, integrate with Epic and things like that. It's just so awesome to have that sort of 
integration and, and just again streamlining, right? We're in 2022. I mean, this is this is Yeah, we're already two decades into the to the most recent century. I mean, I know. we're still using technology that was created in the last century. So it's funny. It's medicine is always like just like literally three decades. I mean, it's it's crazy that paper charts are still being used at places and and you know, you go you compare yourself to like a tech company and I have a lot of friends in tech and they look at what we do and they're like, man, you guys are just antiquated. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> it's right. Funny. What do you see as the future of these platforms? We touched base about a couple of things, but do you think like aside from measurements and all that, will, will you think it'll like determine approach or, or device recommendations? Things no, like you know, that? I think, I think, like you said, we're in 2022, soon to be 2023 right now. And we've talked mostly about the power that artificial intelligence gives us in terms of imaging. But what I would say is that it AI is integral to robotics and robotic surgery, machine learning with uh, robotics for motion and manipulation. AI is already heavily used in robotics. I think that's the future because we're seeing a lot of robotic surgery. I know uh, my good friend Matt Eagleton is working with a company called Centerline Biomedical, which um, is using robotics to be able to reduce the radiation exposure to providers and to the surgical team by being able to operate remotely and stay away from the radiation field. Um, I also think that a future for AI is in genetics and being able to go through the genetic, the billions of data points that come out of the genetic code for any individual human and to identify those patients with connective tissue disorders that are young and that have not yet developed an aneurysm or a dissection, but are at risk of developing that. So genetic aortopathies will be identified by AI in the future. And that's just a, you know, that's five to 10 years away from now. Yeah, totally. We, we live in a cool, I mean, I mean, 2030, we'll, we'll see what we'll be talking about then, right? I mean, it's yeah. going to be... We're, it's exciting. It's exciting, especially if you just compare to what we were doing in 1990 and what we're doing now. Um, yeah. Just imagine uh, 10, 20 years from now. So... Well, Ben, uh, that was uh, really intriguing and, and, and a lot of information. I uh, Anything else you want to kind of comment on regarding aortic disease in general or um, AI or anything else you want our listeners to know? Yeah, all I would say to our listeners is uh, today is that, you know, we're already using AI on a daily basis thousands of times. And um, you may not realize it, but it is the future. I mean, we have to teach our machines and our technology to help uh, intelligently coordinate care for our patients. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, everything is patients first. We want to make everything, you know, better and better outcomes. That's what our goal is. And technology is obviously the way to do that. So Ben, thanks again. Really appreciate you coming on the show, giving your kind of perspective and, and from all your experience of, of aortic management. So Thank you again. Thank you, Sabine. It's been a pleasure being here. Absolutely. And thanks to Kieran and the Backtable team uh, for making this happen. And we'll, uh, uh, we'll look forward to talking to you some more. Sounds great. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck 
Sabine Dond, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.